Hello, and I'm Michael. Um, and we're here again, delighted to be uh, up and running again. Uh, we were just uh, in Florence, in Firenze, with our grand tourists and thinking about Horace Walpole, who will travel to Rome to um, carry on on his grand tour. We thought about this and we were wondering, we might have to recap, seeing as we've had so many of these, the objectives of this grand tour. So it's typically the grand tourist is a young man during the 18th century who has a thorough grounding in Greek and Latin literature, but he develops, you know, he wants to round off his education by making this tour via, you know, we've had this before from Florence through Turin, maybe to Venice and back across the Apennines to um, Montepulciano, uh, to, yes, those wonderful Tuscan towns, San Gimignano, uh, Siena and Florence. And then their main destination within Italy, the great focus was Rome, whose ancient ruins and more recent achievements were shown to every grand tourist. So we last paused thinking about the Zoffin painting, which was uh, in Florence a reference to the Medici collection in the Tribune of the Uffizi. And actually, Zoffany was working off an idea that he'd seen in Rome by Gian Paolo Panini's ancient and modern Rome paintings. And these were these compiled uh, sites of the, the main sites that were most prized and most celebrated in terms of the views of famous ruins, the vedute, in terms of the sites themselves, from the Pantheon, from St. Peter's to the Greco-Roman statues that were on view. And since very few museum in Europe were open to, or even were really up and running during this period of time, the Vatican Museum, the Belvedere was on view. This was the means by which these grand tourists saw paintings and sculpture. They gained admission to private collections in Rome and many were eager also then to acquire these statuary Italian art for their own collections and bringing this back to Great Britain and Ireland was an aristocratic pursuit where these noblemen would then build in the style of Palladio that they'd seen in the Veneto and decorate these houses and countryside their landscapes with these evocative ruins in the form of these sculpture and statues so their own houses and gardens would and country houses would reflect this grand tour so in that regard thinking of Walpole and others eager to procure these mementos of their travels they also were led through the city of Rome and um, in that regard you know the views made more sense to them so knowing what say the British artist Richard Wilson would draw say some of these like Walpole on, or others on front of or standing close to the Pantheon or Batone would paint a portrait of an aristocrat and then with perhaps a view such as that captured by Gian Giovanni Battista Piranesi's Prince of Rome. So ancient structures such as the Colosseum and the Pantheon were very much on their trail. Well that's interesting you should say that because I was in, in London a few weeks ago and I went to see the uh, two Turner paintings which are on, uh, on display in the National Gallery and then that charged my interest in, uh, in Turner so so much so that I went down to see his works in the Tate Museum and uh, one of the panels that I was reading on the wall brought it home to me that during the 17th, 18th and 19th century there were so many wars going on that it was, it was difficult for people to travel so at the beginning of our podcast series several episodes ago we mentioned how hard it was to travel. There were no cars, planes, automobiles, anything like that. We didn't have those easy travel 
uh, forms, but what we had was the stagecoach or even walking. So it's it's worth remembering that and then remembering about the history of Rome because it's extraordinary to think there are people who have never been to Rome. <laughs> Difficult as it may be to, to believe, but Rome just in a, in a paragraph was, well is I should say, 3,000 years old. The archaeologists who are working on the form at the moment have come up with uh, an even longer span. So they work out that Rome was probably founded 3,000 years ago or so. And it began in a curve of the Tiber River and it went from being a small village in Latium to a kingdom, then a republic, and finally to an empire. And that empire was to remain in place, you could argue, until the time of Napoleon, strange to say. But by the 18th century, Rome had slipped down in importance. It was no longer the number one city in the world. And there are several reasons for this, but one of the most important was that the wars which decimated Central Europe in the 16th and 17th centuries that I mentioned had also interrupted the pilgrimage routes from Northern Europe. In addition, Christianity had been severed in two uh, after the reforms of Martin Luther and Zwingli, Calvin and Melchthon and others. And now there were two main forms of Christianity in mainland Europe, Catholicism and the Reformed faith. And furthermore, countries such as Portugal, Spain, France and Germany and England were all vying with each other to dominate the global market and nationalism was very much in the fore at the time. And several of these emerging nations tried to establish empires. Italy, of course, was not united until the 1870s and was comprised at the time we're speaking about of a series of duchies, petty kingdoms and republics. So Rome was regarded as little more than the remnant of its former glory. Yes, and um, in fact, to add to that, we're familiar with Edward Gibbon's decline and fall of the Roman Empire. But there is a very evocative passage in that, uh, which recalls the author sitting in the ruins of the Roman Forum, and he's considering the last days of Rome, the time of when Pope Eugenius IV, the learned Poggius, and his friend, two of his servants, they ascend the, the Capitoline Hill, and they repose among the ruins, and they view from this commanding spot the wide and various prospect of desolation. So that's a kind of wonderful idea, whether, you know, the vicissitudes of fortune the notion of you know of of you know man reaching an ascent his proudest works which then ultimately become kind of buried empires uh, and the cities it maybe you know it's it's agreed between them that her former greatness in that it's in proportion the fall of rome was even more awful and deplorable and edward gibbons is an important character in our story of course because he writes over many many years the great uh, multi-volume uh, collection, The Decline and Fall of Rome. And it's, it's a wonderful, wonderful work. I read it a few years ago. It took me, gosh, I suppose about two years to plough through because it's quite dense. But his prose is magnificent and his contrapost uh, of words is really, really impressive. So this is written at the time when all these, as you mentioned, Linda, the, the young aristocrats were uh, trotting down across the uh, the Alps and into 
Italy. And again, because we're so used to modern travel, we can pop on a plane so easily. We've got to understand how hard life was for these people. Yes, and I think you 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 have a kind of special interest in the Pantheon, which is where we were leading, for example, Horace Walpole. So the the arrival at the city by stagecoach, as you've mentioned, through from the Via Falminia into Piazza del Popolo, the stagecoach would tear down the Violata and kind of hang its go uh, right straight into the back streets, the into the elbow of the crook of the elbow of the in the Tiber where um, a kind of gash, a great uh, small incision, if you like, uh, of, uh, in, it's, it's known as Piazza Navone, it was the Stadium of Domitian. Uh, and this was where these stagecoaches alighted from, uh, where you alighted from your stagecoach, I should say, and met, this is where, the, it was the kind of greeting and meeting point. And from there, um, making a wonderful kind of f- almost festive walk towards the, the Via Balbuino to the area where most of the English lived at that time, close to the Spanish steppes, but sometimes taking a detour and landing yourself on front of the most spectacular view of the Pantheon. And that in itself, um, you know, Pantheon meaning for, of, for all the gods, the Theo, Theo Pantheos, uh, was very much something that was being embraced within that one building. Well, by the time the Grand Turisti, the Melordi, as the Italians call them, arrived in Rome, classical Rome Uh, wasn't completely gone but much of it had been destroyed for a variety of reasons there were earthquakes over it was an area which is very much prone at the in the past to earthquakes and generally the romans have this practice that once the building fell down they left all the bricks and all the debris on the ground and they just built over it and that's why you find the level of modern rome is so much higher and if you go down to the church of san san clemente for example near the Colosseum, you go down several uh, steps into the first century but uh, then you come back up into the modern day church and that's uh, several meters above but even at the time of raphael uh, he went down to or he was called to an audience with pope leo x the son of lorenzo de medici who said uh, you know we've got to do something with rome and raphael undertook the position of grand architect or the great architect of rome and he wrote to the pope with Baldassare Cosa and said, you know, we've got to look at the great patrimony which we've inherited, but we've destroyed so much of this. And he was given the responsibility to preserve the remnants of the classical buildings of Rome. But unfortunately, as we know, Raphael died within five years of his new job. And then subsequent popes raided the Forum and other buildings to build their massive churches. But it's true that the Pantheon is one of the most important buildings and one of the most impressive buildings to survive to the present day. And the reason for that actually is curiously because it was transformed into a church in 609. If that hadn't happened, I guess it may have suffered the same fate as many of the other great buildings. And certainly the colonnade, which stood at one stage outside the, the Pantheon, has now been taken away and destroyed and probably is built into lots of other more modern buildings over the last couple of uh, hundred years or more. But the building itself uh, was probably started by Marcus Agrippus in the uh, decades before the time of Augustus, so we're talking roughly 2,000 years ago. It was built in its own private grounds, so it wasn't a very large building at the time. 
It was destroyed within 50 years by fire. And then another emperor coming along on his heels, um, Domitian, built it and expanded it. But that again was destroyed probably by fire. And it was um, the, the next emperor who was given the responsibility of building this, this great uh, temple, as you say, to all the gods. Marcus Aurelius undertook this, this uh, task and the new building was completed probably by the year 126. And the thing that's unusual about it, uh, that we look at it today anyway, is because it is made as a drum. So it's a round building surmounted by a magnificent coffered ceiling. And the coffered ceiling is made of cement whereas the drum is made of brick. And as in all the cases, when we look at all these wonderful buildings which have survived in Rome, we think, well, the brick isn't very Im impressive. But of course, that was only the interior of the building, and all these buildings were clad with, with marble. Yes, absolutely. I mean, Rome is, is, is indeed such a treasure of and treasure trove of, 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 of uh, as we know. Um, and as you were saying, I mean, essentially, yes, the Pantheon survives in that it's Santa Maria and Martires. It becomes this church. And over time, you mentioned the wonderful Raffaello. His tomb, in fact, is also within, is inside. So it's, it's, um, it is one of those extraordinary kind of sensations to walk into this spherical. You go through that forest of columns from Mons, Mons Claudianus. In actual fact, some time back, I had the uh, extraordinary op opportunity. I was working on an excavation sometime back in the eastern desert in Egypt, and I went to see Mons Porphyrites and then Mons Claudianus, where that extraordinary pinky grey granite comes from. And these columns were 60 Roman feet uh, in height, and um, Hadrian directed the building operations via um, this extraordinary kind of chain of forts coming through the eastern desert to the Nile, and then the, these huge monolithic columns were um, brought down the Nile on the grain fleet. The grain fleet would uh, ship them via Campania to Rome, and these were just, I think there's eight, eight by four, eight fours, uh, four eights are 32, so there's something among that number uh, that are in this very classical portico. And not to forget also, Marcus Agrippa is reflected in the uh, inscription on the facade where it says Marcus Agrippus, Marcus Agrippa Lucius Filius, he's the son of Lucius Facit. So that, in fact, is a wonderful kind of reference to Agrippa, who was the, he is in fact the, the, like the, for all the world, like the building manager in Rome. So he builds the first temple. So that portico is a classical reference to that. And then it conceals barely the this extraordinary uh, rotunda that you walk into. And it's still there with some restoration. But in the main, it's uh, the marble rebattments, the porphyry, the giallo antico is all there on view to see. Well, going back to your comment about the, the columns as well, they're fascinating because, again, these were extracted from the quarries, the imperial quarries, and they're important because they belong privately to the emperor. So the emperor had extracted these columns of, of marble, you know, huge, heavy stone. And the interesting thing about Roman columns is that they were all erected as one piece, not like the Greek columns. These were usually uh, put up like jigsaw pieces or mechanical pieces of Lego. 
in in sections, drum upon drum upon drum. That's the way the Greeks built. But the Romans only used single uh, unfluted columns uh, where possible. And how did they get them over to, as you say, ship them down through the Nile and across the Mediterranean where they could be shipwrecked or whatever? And that's because they laid them in grain and the grain was a light. It's, it acted like sand just to hold them snugly. And yet it wasn't heavy enough like sand, which would have sunk the ships. But it brings to mind all the shipwrecks that must have happened over the centuries. Um, just as an example, you've the wonderful pair of bronzes of life-size statues, which were discovered off the coast of Riace Marina in Calabria in 1972. And this was a pair of Greek bronze statues. We know little or nothing of their destination, apart from the fact that they were clearly intended for a Roman audience. And the cell, the interior cell of that drum was probably filled with statues of the deities, uh, possibly of the planetary deities, and of the deified emperors who had been de deified since the time of Augustus. But I digress as usual. The wooden beams on the porch's roof were once covered with bronze. Pope Urban VIII, who lived in the 17th century, was one of the great patrons of the Baroque, but we will never know how many statues from antiquity were melted down to create his monumental works. So look, for example, in St. Peter's at the altar of the chair, and the Baldacchino, the great canopy over the high altar in St. Peter's. The Baldacchino, which comprised about 90 tons of bronze, may have come in part from the, the uh, roof of the porch of the Pantheon. Yeah, and indeed, well, I think, in fact, it, it is fairly well, well, well kind of attributed to quid non facit barberini Faker, no, quid non facit barbar, faker run barberini. So that is reference to these, uh, the removal of the bronze rosettes that were actually in the coffers of the, uh, of the interior of the Pantheon, which make up, that Bernini used to make up the canopy of the Baldacchino in St. Peter's. And I think that leads us to where we're going with this idea and over to you, Michael, to, to set us up for maybe what's our, our next episode. Well, a place on the family name of Urban VIII, the Barberini family. So when he said what the barbarians didn't do, the Barberini family did. And it's so true because so many things were destroyed. But the, there are wonderful paintings of the inside of the Pantheon dating from the time of the Gran Turisti in the 18th century, where they actually sail in a boat. And I remember seeing this for my first time many, many years ago. and wondering, how could you sail into the Pantheon? But the reason for that was because in antiquity, right up to the 19th century, Rome flooded and the area where the the uh, Pantheon is built, is called the Campo Marzio, the Field of Mars, and it was almost level to the, the water of the Tiber. So when the the waters rose, which regularly happened, the city itself was flooded. And one of the places which actually filled, uh, which acted like a container was the Pantheon because the waters rushed through the single door because there was no other enter, entry or exit and no other windows on any part of the drum. So the, therefore the water rushed through the doors and during that period, you were able to sail into the Pantheon and look up at the wonderful coffer dome. And the dome itself is fascinating because it's made of concrete. And concrete was very much a Roman in invention made from sand, 
aggregate lime and water. And the great thing about concrete was that it could set under underwater. And that's what made it such a versatile material. And finally, how do we, how do, or what was the, the purpose of the ceiling and how was it made? Still, that is a subject for archaeologists and art historians to argue over. It seems quite likely, most likely, that the uh, the dome was made from an enormous big uh, wooden frame onto which the concrete was poured. And then when that was all done, the concrete had set, the, the wood was detached and dismounted. Yes, yeah, so the centering, essentially. And what I suppose is also so... Uh, remarkable about the Pantheon is that it is a spherical dome, but the single light source is the oculus, uh, it was the eye, if you like, at the top. So it has this kind of cosmological association as the light moves, the source of light moves around during the day towards from dawn to dusk. And as you mentioned, the painting. So just to kind of bring us to a pause here, the it's again, it's Paolo Panini who will record this Pantheon in that way. And Panini is also, so he makes, for their, our, our Gran Turisti, he made views of ancient Rome, such as interior views of the Pantheon, but he also made views of the mod modern Rome at that time. And his his he captures the uh, St. Peter's, which um, I think we are going to turn to next for our next episode. So for now, we'll wish you well and bid you adieu uh, or ciao until uh, our, our next episode. Thank you very much for listening and look forward to seeing you next time. Ciao, arrivederci, arrivederci.